first tired out, we would have all these eyes on the train. They would see that, especially at the time of the night that this derailment happened. Somebody would have caught this. Railroads don't run through the backyards of wealthy people. So this is the working class who's suffering from this. Data is very lucrative. Selling to teen consumers, for example, very, very profitable. So at the moment, I think it's the Wild West in schools. It shows the power of, of actions like what, what we could call riots to sometimes emotionally break through you know, the narrative that we've all become used to about who's the good guys and who's the bad guys kind of thing. It really did seem to feel like there was a consensus that, you know, AI isn't going to replace performers, but it might mean that Hollywood does 10 times more than they're doing now. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show, two reports focusing on the recent trail derailments across the country. Jeff Kurtz of Railroad Workers United talks with the We Rise Fighting podcast about the roots of the problem. Then, on the Working People podcast, rail workers Matt Weaver says East Palestine was a hell of Wall Street's making. Then, teasing the tech, things teachers should know about the impact of education technologies. That's from the Ed Voices podcast put out by Education International, the voice of teachers and other education employees across the globe. Next, Why Not Riot? The Green and Red podcast talks with Ben Case, author of a provocative new book, Street Rebellion, Resistance Beyond Violence and Nonviolence, which challenges the strategy of nonviolent and often non-aggressive protest and makes a case that riots are another tactic to be used by the left. Our final segment today is from the SAG-AFTRA podcast, which toured the show floors at the CES Tech Show last month and brings us a closer look at AI and the future of film, the latest trends and innovations that may be affecting the entertainment industry in the years ahead. In a related note, by the way, the Screen Actors Guild Awards are tomorrow night. You can check out actor and labor podcaster Harold Phillips' labor picks on today's Labor Goes to the Movies podcast. We've got a link in the show notes. Just search for Labor Goes to the Movies wherever you listen to podcasts. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. And if you like what you hear, take a moment, subscribe, share the show. It's what we call Sonic Solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Welcome back to another edition of We Rise Fighting Labor podcast, where we bring you today's labor news, history, and analysis from the U.S. and around the world. This is a podcast you listen to with your fellow workers organizing on the shop floor. This is a podcast you listen to before walking into your union meeting. As always, I am Rick Rutia here with my co-host Brian Pfeiffer. All right, everyone. And on our show today, again, is Jeff Kurtz. You may remember he joined us uh, once earlier before. He's representing the Railway Workers United. And just wanted to check in about what happened with the recent derailments and where the history of that is 
you know, Railway Workers United role, uh, their, the union's role in this. Just, Jeff, if, if you could give us a little history of what got us to today as far as these recent derailments. Okay, and, and thank you very much, Rick, for having me on today. Um, this actually goes back to the 1985 agreement uh, that um, was uh, fostered by the, the Reagan administration, their uh, presidential emergency board that, that they instituted. It was contract negotiations similar to what we just did in 2022. And basically what happened is they told the UTU at the time, and now the UTU is Smart uh, Transportation Division, but if you don't accept this, we're going to give you something much worse. So what they did was basically hold a gun to these guys' heads. What they had to end up signing for was an agreement that allowed the railroads to start cutting their jobs. So we we used to have um, two brakemen and a conductor on each train. We used to have cabooses on each train. They were they were far smaller than they are now, but they ran uh, more safely than they did. Well, this allowed the government to, or not the government, this allowed the railroads to uh, start cutting employees. So eventually, and it was at the, on the Santa Fe at the time. It uh, got we got down to uh, one conductor and one brakeman by about 1990. Um, it shortly thereafter, it was just uh, the engineer and the conductor, and the cabooses went by the wayside. Okay, so so to clarify here, Jeff, because this is where my knowledge is at, as far as these current events. Um, all I know right now is that the federal government is doing an investigation. So are you tracing the root of the problem to the amount of staffing um, for railway workers? Am, am I understanding you correctly here? Uh, staffing and uh, and eventually I want to get into the length of the trains too, because that that was a major factor in this last derailment. The length and um, tonnage of this train, it was 9,300 feet long. 18,000 tons. So when we ran trains shorter back in the day, uh, we, like I said, we had uh, people on the rear end of the train, people on the head end. We experienced things like uh, hot journals. Uh, we experienced sticky brakes and things like that. But from what I heard from, from this accident, they saw fire flying from under the car at least 20 miles away. Yeah. And it, you know, and, and that indicates to me that it was a bad journal, uh, uh, journal connected to the wheel. And back when, back in the seventies and eighties, when I first hired out, when that would happen, we would have all these eyes on the train. They would see that, especially at the time of the night that this derailment happened. It happened at about nine o'clock at night. So that gave them three hours of darkness where, when you're going around curves and everything, and you've got that many eyes on it, somebody would have caught this. And what, what the procedure is, when you catch something like this, you stop your train, uh, the conductor or the brakeman or both, go back, look at the, inspect the car. They would have set that car out, tied back onto their train, uh, got the air back into the braking system, 
and been on their way. And, and there wouldn't have been any catastrophe. Thank you, Jeff. And, you know, we're going to keep in touch and keep, you know, hopefully updated on what's going on with you and Railway Workers United. Thank you for being on the show today. Okay, and, and thank you, Rick. Thank you so much for having me. Definitely go to Railroad Workers United website. Uh, sign up for their email listserv. It's very informative, very helpful. Uh, thank you again, Jeff. You have a good day. Thank you. Okay. Well, welcome everyone to another special urgent episode of Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today. Brought to you in partnership with In These Times Magazine and The Real News Network, produced by Jules Taylor and made possible by the support of listeners like you. Listeners have been asking us about it left and right. Of course, we all know the basics. A Norfolk Southern train derailed in East Palestine earlier this month. And there's so much that the media has not been focusing on until like maybe the past 48 hours that is connecting this catastrophe to all the things that we were talking about with railroad workers like Matt over the course of the past year. And Matt, I wanted to just turn things over to you. I wanted to ask, as a veteran railroader, as someone who has been focusing intently and speaking loudly and forcefully about the systemic issues on the railroads that have made disasters like this more likely, I was wondering if you could just walk us through what in horrific rail of, an, of this Norfolk Southern train in East Palestine, what the root causes were, what the fallout of this is going to be. It's it's very frustrating, Max. I do agree. I cannot speculate on the exact cause yet, but the NTSB has released a preliminary news release saying that it was axle involved. So there was video of the hot box throwing sparks as much as 20 miles before the derailment. And then there's it goes back to precision scheduled railroading, the business model of the railroad industry for doing more with less. And lately it's been doing less with less. We're moving less freight, still record profits, but less freight, crunch time, skeleton crews. The big issue here may be car inspection times. Machinist friends, car shop friends of mine, they've talked about in the past having two or two guys inspect a car taking four or five minutes to do so. Now it's down to one guy pushing for 90 seconds, less than 90 seconds, as little as a minute, but I can't, I haven't seen that in right. So I, I think that we really need to see the NTSB come up with a conclusive response and let's prevent this. Let's not have this happen again. I know as of late, I've seen the reports of Obama era administration safety regulations being rolled back by the Trump administration, maybe breaking Technology saying it, it costs too much. The report was that it costs too much to install the new electronic control brakes. I don't know a whole lot about those, but how much cost is it going to be to really clean this up and protect American lives? Railroads don't run through the backyards of wealthy people. So this is the working class who's suffering from this. I wanted to focus on the other part that you said, Matt, because this didn't come out as much over the course of last year when we were all talking about the crisis on the railroads, right? Because I think a lot of the focus was on the engineers and the conductors, understandably, but it was really important to hear folks like you talk about the maintenance of Wayside, talk about 
the car inspection side, right? The track maintenance side and how that played into the larger discussion we were having. Can you just say a little more about that for folks who maybe didn't hear that side of the story when we were talking about why the railroads are in such a crisis right now? In, in my career, I've been on the railroad for 28 years. Um, the business model of precision scheduled railroading, PSR, is decimating the man count. We're down as much as 30% over the last 10 years in, in manpower of rail labor. So I see that it, it's deferred maintenance. It's often the Band-Aid on a broken leg style of repair, and that's scary. We have a right to speak up, and there are whistleblower protections and good faith challenges to things. But there's been a lot of retaliation on rail workers, rail labor, that we have our own law, CFR 20109, whistleblower retaliation on railroads. I've actually had a case. So people are afraid to speak up because of things like this. And now back in the day when I hired him, we had six or seven guys on a track section gang. Now it's two or three. We had the bridge gang I hired on. We had six guys. Now it's three or four. There's not enough guys to do the work. And the work is being deferred till there's an emergency. When there's a disaster, oh yeah, we'll fix it now. But preventive maintenance is not as popular with the shareholders as it used to be in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, man, this is just, this is what happens when you just do and commit to the just-in-time sort of production model, right? Now we're talking about a worst-case scenario with this catastrophic and toxic train derailment in East Palestine, and this stuff is is... It's not inevitable. We can avoid this. We can reinvest in the workforce that maintains this vital infrastructure. We can make our rail system better if we just actually listen to workers and stop letting Wall Street destroy this vital component of our supply chain. And oh, go ahead, Matt, please. No, no other industry in America has these profit margins. They're so spectacular. They're, they're pushing for an operating ratio of 55. And if you talk about the fast food industry, they're shooting for operating ratios to get under 90. It's it's absurd that they're making so much money. They're making so much profit. They can afford to do this better. Welcome to this new Ed Voices podcast by Education International. Today I have the honor to welcome Neil Selwyn, professor at the Faculty of Education in Monash University, Australia. Neil is recognized as a leading international researcher in the area of digital education. Welcome, Neil. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mark. And our very own Martin Henry, research coordinator at Education International. Hi, Martin. Hi, Ma. Over to you, Martin. Thanks, Ma. So to kick us off, when we look at the burgeoning edtech sector, what do you think are the quintessential drivers of profit and what impact does this have on both teachers and students? The main driver, as always, is selling tech to schools and universities for profit. Uh, the main problem is that selling tech to schools and universities is not particularly profitable. I don't think it ever really has been. Um, so I think one of the main outcomes of this is that we get shoddy products 
we get low quality tech, low quality systems. That's that's my concern at the bottom end. I mean, and also that schools and universities are being sold tech that's often not very well suited to education. Uh, systems and software and devices that are developed for, for business. You know, PowerPoint is des designed for business boardroom pitches. It's not designed for kind of primary school kids being creative. Um, I think now you're right. It, it, we could call it burgeoning. Things have changed in the last 30 odd years that I've been around. And, and the ed tech market now is dominated by big tech actors. It's no longer very small, bespoke education companies. We've got the Googles and the Amazons and the Microsofts and everybody else involved. But again, I think these companies are mainly involved in education, perhaps as a loss leader. It might be part of a kind of total market domination. You know, we've got communities, we've got hospitals, we've got you know domestic consumers, we've got business. We might as well have schools as well. Back in the day, some of these companies used to talk about schools as a great place to kind of groom future consumers. You know, you get kids used to using Google at five. They'll use Google products when they're 25. And there is also an element of you know, corporate social responsibility. It feels good to be involved in education. And, you know, lots of these companies, big tech companies, do think they can make a difference and and change the world. So it's a burgeoning market, but it's uh, it's never really going to be you know, a, a huge, big, profitable tech market that it could be, which is perhaps why we shouldn't have profit-driven motives driving what happens in it. So if we talk about the profit motive, let's talk about corporate-driven data approaches. So what are they trying to do with this data? Yeah, I mean, it's, data is the lifeblood of the technologies that we use. So we don't necessarily see the data kind of escaping, but it, everything you do online leaves a digital trace, a data trail, and that data is, is, is taken up by, by lots of lots of different actors. So having technology in schools inherently brings in this idea that data has been generated by what you do. It's been collected, it's been collated, it's been circulated. And student data is just one part of data within schools that's that's kind of been, we need to think about everything you give to the computer will get taken somewhere else. But it also you using technology creates data, creates system data in the background, what we might call trace data. So, and this data is used in different ways. On a base level, the data is used to improve the technology, which you might think is fair enough, but data is used for lots of other reasons as well. I mean, the chat GTP is interesting. So, I mean, big AI systems are trained on massive training data sets that are scraped from the web. So chat GTP is trained on a whole bunch of large text corpuses, Wikipedia, Reddit, all sorts of social media conversations, which is why it's quite a, a dodgy thing to use because all it's doing is paraphrasing back those sources. So if you want to write something that's a mashup of Reddit, Wikipedia, and a few other things, then ChatGTP is the thing for you. But he, he, this is, this is again, is really, really problematic. Um, in just, again, in terms of informed consent. And when you've got children involved or you know students in, working for, on schoolwork, again, you've got to argue about, is that data reusable? I would argue not. And then the real harm is the, the use of this data for the data economy. So there's a huge data brokering industry, data economy, firms that sell data to third parties, normally advertisers to have more targeted advertising. And you see this a lot in schools. If adverts start popping up on apps that you're using or software that you're using, that's what's going on. So it, there's big dollars in this. Education data is, is, is very lucrative. Selling to you know teen consumers, for example, very, very profitable. So at the moment, I think it's the Wild West in schools. Most schools are not aware of this. Most teachers are not aware of this. And if schools are aware of it, they're just resigned to it. What can you do?
you, you have to tick it, agree or accept or you know <laughs> on the otherwise you can't use the tool um i've done it with this this call on zoom who knows where well, i could tell you where the data is going but you know it it's just part of the the everyday digital ecosystem that we live in so i don't not blaming schools or teachers for not checking this out um it's it's really really tricky Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Park. Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host Scott Parkin in Berkeley, California today, and as always, I am joined by uh, Bob Bazanko in Houston right now. Yep. And today we're going to be talking about a much debated, discussed topic uh, that's been going on as long as I've been in the movement, which is like over 20 years. Uh, we're going to be talking with Ben Case, who is an organizer, sociologist, researcher, writer. Mm -hmm. Uh, postdoctoral scholar at the Center for Work and Democracy, and he is the author of a new book that we're going to be talking about called Street Rebellion. Uh, welcome to the Green and Red podcast, Ben. Thanks for having me. So, you know, again, I mean, you know, you talked about this is a moral and a strategic issue. Post George Floyd, do you think that this is, there's, there's shifting terrain on this where especially younger people, I think like the kids of Portland, I call them kids because I'm an old man, but like the Antifas, you know, who are actually going toe to toe because the right has never, you know, forsaken violence, obviously. And so when you say we're not going to be violent, we're not even going to put a brick through a bank window and you have the Proud Boys and, you know, all these guys out there where they are, as you, you've kind of, I mean, frankly, you know, almost lost a battle before you get started. Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, for, yeah, for, sorry about that. I, no, it was no, more of a rant than a question. Yeah, <laughs> no, I want to be in discussion. That's great. Yeah. I mean, and that that's that's a big part of what inspired me to take on this yeah. research project and write this book is is the fact that this is a recurring argument. Yeah. I think it it's um you know it it serves a destructive function in movements too often where we get bogged down in this argument and and fighting each other over it when in reality. Uh, if you look at any moment of uprising from from a sort of you know insurrectionary moment of uprising all the way through to a whole sort of revolutionary moment um they're always or you know asterisk on always but almost always they involve the sorts of actions you'd call violent and the sorts of actions you'd call nonviolent they involve both so if we're going to understand that if we're going to build toward that we have to reach a point where we understand at least the ways that these can coexist and and potentially act symbiotically um, that doesn't mean every individual has to do, has to like, you know, engage in actions that run the whole spectrum, but they're all there. And the George Floyd uprising is, is um, you know, is a, a perfect and, 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 and tragic example. If we go back to some of those moments, um, you know, in Minneapolis, those, those few days after Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd, um, we, we learn a lot about this debate itself. And, and you know, you, you go through that moment to moment, there were people who were demonstrating nonviolently the whole time. I think there was a sort of a visceral understanding that, um, uh, that sometimes these types of responses and reactions are necessary. You know, there was a poll, I think it was a, 
I can't remember, I don't want to get it wrong. It was USA Today, but there was a, there was a national poll um, right after um, uh, right after the the uprising in Minneapolis that that showed that 54 percent of, of, of it was USA Today. It was USA was Today. It? We, uh, we talk we talk we talk yeah, about yeah. it a lot. I thought it was yeah. Newsweek, but it yeah, I remember. You know, like fifty-four percent thought that the burning of the third precinct, and, was and a large majority supported defunding. They supported Black Lives Matter, That's and right. you know, even though they had that momentum, I remember Biden and Bernie Sanders and everybody stepping in and saying, "Oh no, we can't do this. We got to give the cops more money. You got to stop doing this stuff." In that moment. Mm -hmm. A majority that's a, a na nationwide poll that wasn't just people locally mm -hmm. right people who are far away why mm -hmm. if you had taken that poll two weeks earlier there's no way you probably wouldn't have made it out of single digits no. if it was just an abstraction people would say no but why because people had just seen that video right that video was everywhere and it was just enraging and heartbreaking and after seeing that video you don't know what to do with that and then you see people who who did something who burned down the third precinct, people say, yeah, you know what? I'm so mad that is justified in that moment. That's how that felt. That was accessing some reality there through all of the noise, right? That gets imposed on us. Um, but it shows the power of, of actions like what, what we could call riots to sometimes emotionally break through uh, the, you know, the narratives that we've all become used to about, you know the status quo in the society we live in and you know who's the good guys and who's the bad guys kind of thing you know that just like endless reruns of law and order that we all watch if you're like you can't sleep or you're whatever you know it's like all that sort of stuff is is deep in there um for a moment you can break through that sometimes with those sorts of actions so th so thanks for joining um folks you've been listening to ben case who's the author of a new book that we've been discussing uh called street rebellion and we'll talk to y'all again soon. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the SAG-AFTRA podcast. I'm Duncan Crabtree-Ireland, National Executive Director of SAG-AFTRA. And I am Ben Whitehair, Executive Vice President of SAG-AFTRA. In January, SAG-AFTRA members and staff attended CES in Las Vegas. The four-day event is the largest tech show in the world, with companies big and small showcasing the latest technological advances. We're joined by three members of SAG-AFTRA's National Innovation and New Technology Committee, Aubrey Muzino, Dilip Rao, and Randall Berger. The trio recently returned from CES, where they experienced the latest trends in technology firsthand. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Philippe, what was your experience? So this is my second in person and third overall. And, I, you know, CES is a very interesting space to be in for people in labor because there's a whole aspect of the show. In fact, I'd say the prevailing wind of the show is always a kind of sales-oriented, slightly hype-driven, slightly, have you heard of the cuttingest news, right? And every single iteration the thing that was the hottest ever like two ago or one ago is just gone. And so I think we always have to take what we see with a bit of a grain of salt and try to detect the signal and the noise. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of stuff being offered. And I think the things that I took away from this particular CES are there is a very strong input and in that signal and a very strong interest in AI having arrived and that we have reached a new peak in its functionality and its execution. And I think it's undeniable. Some things have definitely arrived. And I think that the real takeaway for me was that, yes, there are new things happening. I don't think they're anywhere near what 
everyone said they were. They will iterate their way towards something that is plausibly incredibly powerful for filmmaking. But a lot of what we saw was prosumer, consumer level distribution of things that are not quite ready that we use every day in Hollywood for shooting things, acting, filming, capture. Yeah. And there was also just a lot of stuff that I think is iteratively interesting, but it's just almost the first layer of seeing something that's truly capable of doing something interesting. I don't think we're here where we're going to start replacing actors and things like that. I don't think we're there yet, and I don't see it as of now. So, so long as there remain to be humans, fingers crossed, it does seem that storytelling has a lot of staying power and is not going anywhere. So I, it, it, it is exciting to me to see the different and new ways that we can tell stories. And I am reminded that whether it's through voice, news, dance, acting, that at its core, there is still this human storytelling element that is so intrinsically important to human beings. One of the things that I felt really comforted, I think, by was there was, it really did seem to feel like there was a consensus that, you know, AI isn't going to replace performers, but it might mean that Hollywood does 10 times more than they're doing now. So instead of just, you know, replacing it, it really is augmenting in the fact that movies can be made faster, cheaper, which also means you were sort of speaking to this earlier too, Ben, about, um, you know, stories that maybe weren't able to be told previously that can now because resources are more accessible to filmmakers that previously couldn't. They maybe were the barriers to entry were too high for them to get into the creator economy. And hopefully, I think the highest sort of um, the best version of this would be that it would lower those barriers to entry. More content would be created. More stories that were not told before would be told. Um, and then our members theoretically would have more opportunity to work. So I think if it could, you know, really um, up the quantity and hopefully that would mean keep the quality by, you know, using real people to create the um, the, the story part of that. I think that would be my my dream version of this. And I, I think that's realistic. I don't think that's off the table by any means. One of the things that's like I'm taking things to its logical conclusion is the idea that as we rely on technologies to do some of the tasks that we used to do, whether that is altering uh, the voice or Dalib talking about changing the shape of the mouth. As more people get access to it, yes, Ben, it will allow people to have a voice who didn't have before, but it'll also, I believe, create a lot of mediocrity. Like it, everybody will get a chance to create something and it will all be out there. And at first blush, that seems, well, oh, I just don't want, then everything will be mediocre. But I think I think we can take some comfort in the fact that as artists and creatives, we can excel past that mediocrity and create something that's special, even though we might not, even though we might utilize some of those technologies to create it. The SAG After podcast is produced and edited by Aaron Goddard and John Small. Supervising producers are Pamela Greenwald, Shira Reich, and Michael McNulty, with production and marketing support from Damon Romine, Jalika Conte, Margot Giordano, Bernadine Robbins, and Maria Cabezas. This podcast is hosted by Ben Whitehair and me, yours truly, Duncan Crabtree Ireland. 
And that'll do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the shows you heard today in the show notes, and you'll find all our network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them, use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show. Our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. Mm-hmm.